Okay, so we are in John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. And if you are very, very studious, you would recognize that this is immediately following the verses that we looked at last week. So last week we looked at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 15, and this week we're going from 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So this is, like I said, this is following on from last week. It's still the Last Supper. So this is actually one long sequence and one long speech in the scriptures. And we, like last week, we are cutting Jesus short again this week. He actually keeps talking till the end of chapter 16. So we are just taking a snippet of this particular conversation. And it starts out... Um, Really simply, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And then he explains what it means to remain in his love. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now in the, the Gospel of John, he doesn't have, like it doesn't record that interaction where Jesus is talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and they're like, what's the most important commandment? And he's Oh, the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. Uh, he doesn't have that conversation in the book of John. So this is like the John equivalent of the most important commandment that happens next. This is uh, like he's kind of set everything up for this big moment. I've, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. So his joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here is not a worldly, normal, regular person joy. Uh, it's a, an otherworldly joy. In the same way that he says, I want you to have peace. Uh, earlier in this conversation or in John uh, chapter 14, he says, peace I leave you, uh, I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, when Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my peace, and now he's saying, I'm going to give you my joy, he's not talking about the regular type. Because you've got to remember, he's about to get killed. His kind of peace is in the garden saying, uh, God, if there's any other way we can do this, because the whole getting crucified thing is not a great strategy for my uh, regular peace and regular joy. But he says, but your will, Father, so somehow there is a way to have the Father's will, and for Jesus at this time it meant crucifixion, but also experience peace and joy.
My naughty puppy has just arrived for those people at home. Bernie, get out of here. Oh, he knows. I don't promise he can't open the door. Which makes no sense because he manages to open it from the other side to get in here. Yeah, when he's pulling it, but... All of these little weird interludes. Later on, I edit this out and I'm like, do I leave that in the podcast? It's like this weird moment of silence and then I'm chastising my pet. Um, so be it. The, the peace and joy that Jesus is offering his disciples is not a worldly peace and joy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a knowledge that in the kingdom that is coming, in the kingdom that is near, in the kingdom that is being made manifest, all things are made right. And all of those anxieties will be washed away and all of the wrong things will be restored and unbroken. So Jesus' peace and Jesus' joy is about a kingdom that is in the process of being made. It's a hope for the future. And then he, he gets right into it. Now he's finally arrived in verse 12. He says, this is my command. Love one another in the same way that I loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now this, this, this is a, a verse, or two verses here rather, uh, but mostly the second one here, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I can think of few verses that have been perverted and, and manipulated more in the history of humankind since this time. This is a verse that was used to send tens and hundreds of thousands of young men to their deaths in World War I. Uh, this was part of propaganda in every war that has been waged by a so-called Christian nation. And even now when we celebrate days like Anzac Day or when we have national days of, of remembrance, they cut this verse out as a way to justify violence in the name of Jesus. This is a verse that has been used for nationalism far more than it has been used for Christianity. It is a text of love that has been shaped into a tool for warmongers. Now, I don't think that means that we should uh, diminish the sacrifice that people have made. We should honour the sacrifices that people have made, especially those who unwittingly were manipulated to go and die for the cause of rich and selfish people. We should honour those who have died in war, but we should never use Jesus as a justification for violence. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will follow my commands. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus didn't go and kill all the Romans. Jesus spread out his arms and died upon a cross. Jesus allowed himself to be murdered by a merciless, vindictive, authoritarian government. And he didn't call angels from heaven to protect himself. He never once lifted a hand in violence towards his enemies, but he said, I will lay down my life for them. The scriptures tell us that it is when we are his enemies that he dies for us. The idea that this verse should be used as somehow a, a way to encourage those to, to go and fight and die and to murder in the name of Christ is a disgrace. And even now there are wars being waged today where there are priests and holy, so-called holy men and women with their anointing oil, putting oil onto weapons and guns and bombs and destruction and death. And it is the Antichrist. That is the absolute Antichrist. 
It is the opposite of Jesus and his kingdom come on earth. His kingdom come that would, would, would be with those who are being murdered and those who are mourning and those who need comfort and those who need protection. Jesus is standing with the victims and he's standing with the refugees and he's standing with the broken. He is not standing with the people with the guns. To lay down one's life is not a command to take another's life. This message in the, the Gospel of John is not just a message that John, uh, sorry, that Jesus is saying to his disciples, because right now his disciples are thinking the end is nigh, and to them the end means we take up arms against the Romans. But Jesus knows, and he keeps telling them, the end is that I die, and then three days later I rise again. I am going to defeat death. And they think he's saying, I am going to defeat the Romans. So they still don't get it. So there is an, an audience here to Jesus' message, but then the book of John itself is also written much later. Um, by much, I mean, not that much later. It's probably 60 odd years later. Some people think as, as few as 30 years after Christ's death and as many as 60 or 80 years after Christ's death. This is when this story was written down. So the, the community of the Johannine community, the people who were receiving this message, they were receiving this message, not like Jesus' disciples who were getting it just before Jesus was crucified. They were getting this message in the midst of persecution under Rome. They were getting this message under the persecution of Nero and the persecution of Domitian. They were getting this message when they were being fed to lions and when they were used as street lamps and when they were being tortured and maimed for public entertainment. And they were receiving this message and the message was not take arms, countrymen, take arms, brothers in Christ, then kill. The message was to lay down your lives, to sacrifice yourselves. It was a beautiful message, a kind message, and a, a message of love, not a message of war. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You see, when we look at the, the life and ministry of Jesus, everything that he'd learned about his father, he made known to them. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. He is the shiniest bit of God's shininess. He shows us exactly 100% what God is like and has always been like. And that is that God is love. God is not some warmongering, violent, capricious, malicious, angry being in heaven that hates everyone who disagrees with him. God is love and he sends his son as the witness and example of that love and his son dies for us. And he says, this is the ultimate example of love, to lay down one's life for your friends. This is the litmus test of relationship with God. You're my friends if you do what I command. Love one another. This is what it means to have fellowship with God. To know his business as a friend, not just as a servant. This term, love one another, is a term that uh, 
comes up again and again. And it, but it's not just love one another. There is this, this thrust of, of message all throughout the early um, New Testament church where it talks about one another or each other again and again. That love one another or love each other, it gets mentioned like 18 times in the New Testament. But if you keep reading and you look just for those that phrase, one another or each other, it says that you should be devoted to one another and to serve one another and to be at peace with one another. It says to confess your sins to one another. Not so that you can rebuke and, and, uh, and, and cast judgment, but so you can be forgiven and restored in relationships. Forgive each other. Honour one another above yourselves. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Encourage one another. Teach and admonish one another. Accept one another. I love this one. Wash one another's feet. At this meal where Jesus is sharing this message of love, it's a meal where he just washed their feet. And this is... His last supper. He knows this is the end. He knows this is where the the end of the road is. This is the last moment he spends with his family. And I I just want you to think about that. Because context changes things. Context changes things. When you say uh, some casual thing to someone like, oh, I'll pray for you. It means something different when they've said, I have cancer. To when they say, uh, you know, oh, I've got to go home and put my kids to bed. <laughs> I'll pray for you. Uh, you know, like you need prayer. But it's not the same. Context means everything. So when we look at this context, Jesus is in his last supper. And he's like, I need to leave them with the most important possible command. Because they are going to get real confused when I die. They're going to be cast aside and they're all going to go run and hide except for a few faithful women. And, and they're going to be scared. And they're going to think, do we fight or do we give up? Do we have no faith? And he says, what, what is it they need to hear? And he says, this is it. Love one another. Everything I've ever taught you, everything the Father's ever shown me, I've given to you. And here it is boiled down into one moment. Love one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, accordions and bass ukuleles. Build each other up. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Pray for each other. Offer hospitality to one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You see, the church is a community that is defined by love, not a creedal statement. In this important moment, Jesus didn't say to you, everything the Father has ever told me, everything the Father has ever shown me, I now give to you, persecute and hate homosexuals. Go and hate the refugee. Go and uh, get really cranky at this particular minority group for this particular sin that you don't think that you have. Uh, Go and do this. He doesn't list out the Ten Commandments. He doesn't whip them out there and he's like, the most important thing that I can possibly give you right now is that you don't steal or commit adultery. He says, love one another. And he's like, if you get that bit right, everything else will make sense. Everything else will line up. This is the most important message that I have for you. Pay attention. I'm about to die. Love one another. And the church is meant to be a community that is defined by that love and not some creedal statement. Not some creedal statement. It's not held together by a set of uh, principles or dogged tolerance, but rather by a deep experience of belonging. Accepting the invitation to be a member of God's household means accepting an invitation to a shared life of redemptive love and a willingness to sacrifice and lay down one's lives for one another. 
I think that these types of relationships, these types of incredible, deep, intimate, loving, connected, belonging relationships have a way of breaking down trauma. They have a way of breaking down generational stuff. They have a way of breaking down sin that would so easily entangle and bind us because when we are loved, when we are in that space, we can grow and we can change and we can receive the feedback that we need in order to grow instead of it just being judgment that condemns us. We mourn together, we celebrate together, we work together, we relax together, regardless of nationality or gender or sexuality or age or wealth or status. In this family, it is defined by love, not by any of those other things. And I know that doing relationship is hard. It's hard enough with the people that you are literally blood related to, let alone a group of otherwise uh, strange people who are messy and broken as well. It's hard. I have been living in community in some capacity for the last 17 and a half years. And in that time, there have definitely been moments where it was incredibly challenging to be near other people. I get it. But I think that doing life together is our greatest opportunity for growth it's our greatest opportunity to understand, understand something of the nature of the kingdom of God. And it's also our greatest witness to the world. When we love one another, people will know that we are his disciples. And I've got to tell you, to be loved, despite all the challenges, but to be loved, to be known and to be loved is an incredibly beautiful thing. And when people commit to sharing their lives with one another, it creates a space and an opportunity for us to grow in patience and forgiveness and humility. And the hard work of relationship makes friendship all the sweeter in the long run. And knowing that, that you will do life over a long period of time allows you to build trust and certainty. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This, this section finishes with this idea that Jesus chooses us. This is really important. He initiates. He chooses his disciples, but he chooses us as well. He initiates. Jesus never says, once you have sorted this stuff out in your life, then you can come in. He never says, once you have gotten rid of that sin or that baggage or that trauma or that issue, then you will be welcomed in. He initiates. He extends love first and he creates a space where we can slowly be transformed and renewed and be welcome. But that welcome is 100% from him. And then it just slowly, we, we become more aware of that welcome. See, normally, a, the reason he says this is because normally a disciple would seek out a rabbi in his culture. It was the disciple's responsibility to find the rabbi and kind of hang on desperately. But he's flipping this on its head and he's saying, I'm the good rabbi, but I choose you. You gotta remember, this is part of a longer message in the book of, of John. He's not just a, a good rabbi, he's a good shepherd. He's the true vine. He's the bread and the life and the resurrection, the way, the truth. 
He initiates and he loves and seeks to do relationship with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have sought us out and that it's your love that transforms us and allows us to bear good fruit. I pray we would abide in you and remain in you and belong in you. And that as we belong, we would see and understand our calling to bring other people into this beautiful kingdom and family. That we would love one another in such a way that people see that we are your disciples. And I pray that as we lay down our lives in sacrifice, it would be in a cause of love and not one of violence or control. That we wouldn't distort your words uh, to fulfill some kind of awful agenda. But we would simply uh, recognize that you loved and that we should also love. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.